0: Got what you wanted last night. If you hate snow, it's going to be 70 degrees on Wednesday and Thursday, and it's all going to be like magic and go away. Um, but glad that we're here this morning, that we were able to meet, and um, I just want to publicly celebrate our um, sexton, Washington Mendoza, who came in this morning before 6 a.m. and cleared out everything around this church so that we could safely um, come in. He's a great asset to our church. Um, so if you look across history, uh, I, I, I'm a somewhat of an avid history fan. I don't want to call myself a history buff because I think I probably can't match up with the actual history buffs. But I enjoy reading about history. And if you look across um, any conflict, any war that has taken place, there's always a moment where historians will look back at that moment and say, this was the final straw. This point was the point of no return where at least one side arrived to a place that says, we just can't do this anymore, we can't have any diplomatic resolutions, there's no way we can settle this, we have to go to violence. In the American Revolution, uh, you had the final straw being the Tea Act of 1773 which gave the British, British tea company a full monopoly over tea sales in the American colonies. And it was the last of a series of events and taxes that finally unified the colonies against their home country. It was not the last thing that happened. It was not even the most terrible thing that happened. But in this escalating conflict, it was the final of a series of events where something just has to give. It led to the Boston Tea Party and then put the colonies on a pathway towards the first shots fired. World War II, the U.S. purposely staying out of the conflict, doing whatever it could to carry out, again, diplomatic resolutions with countries involved, like Japan. Uh, U.S. and Japan were at peace, were even having talks, so they thought about how to maintain peace in the Pacific. And then, on December 7th, 1941, Japan carried out a surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. In Hawaii, and the next day, President Franklin Roosevelt got on the radio to address the nation. Right, the famous line, "A day that will live in infamy," and he said at this point, "quote I have a commitment to have all measures taken for America's defense. Pearl Harbor is the final straw, that the point of no return in an escalating conflict." Well, this morning in our passage, we're going to witness the final straw the final straw between the pharisees and jesus and mark gives it to us in his gospel pretty early on what was it that made the pharisees finally get to the point of no return where they said okay jesus this guy's got to go the point where it's decided he needs to die no more diplomatic resolutions for us what was it what happened we're in Mark chapter 2, and we're preaching through the book of Mark, if you're new with us this morning. And, and over the last couple of weeks, we, we saw three of uh, five straight controversial episodes between Jesus and the Pharisees. Five straight scenes uh, where Jesus and the Pharisees are going head to head. We've seen the first three. This morning, we're going to see the final two, and we're going to see this is the final straw. So join with me as we start. We're going to go Mark 2 through the end, and then to chapter 3, verse 6. But for now, we're just going to start with this last passage in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath." final two episodes this morning and they're both going to revolve around the sabbath And, and jesus wants to expose the pharisees by restoring what's right about the sabbath and so first we see that jesus is concerned about believing what's right it's a simple question right what's the right way to view the sabbath what's the right way to view the sabbath This passage is an affirmation that Jesus is not coming to replace the Old Testament beliefs, but rather he's fulfilling the original intention behind them. And so here's the scene that gets set up. Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field. And as they're walking, they begin to pick these heads of grain to eat. And in and of itself, nothing wrong with that. In fact, in Deuteronomy 23, Moses is giving these kind of miscellaneous laws, these kind of random, disjointed laws to guide the people of Israel. And he talks about this very thing. So follow along on the screen. Deuteronomy 23, he says, If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. And then look, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So basically, listen, you can walk through, and you can even eat as you walk, but you can't harvest Right? You, you can't harvest at your own. So it's available for you to eat, not available for you to harvest. And so um, a few pictures. These are not going to be perfect, but just give you a visual. Um, first, this is Mount Tabor in the background, a, a grain field right in the Middle East. And then they would walk through, and you would pluck a head of a grain, um, and you would rub it in your hand like this. And the, order, the reason why you had to rub it is because you had to separate the chaff from the grain. And so the next one is that you end up with this in your hand. You could separate the chaff, and then you got a snack right? It's not paleo, all right? They're carbon up, but it's, it, it, it's a good snack as you're kind of walking through, right? Jesus wasn't concerned about um, how healthy he had to eat. Um, maybe he was, all right? But basically, the problem is not plucking grain, right? Moses actually spoke of this very thing, but what's the problem? He's doing it on the Sabbath. The precious holy day of the week for israel the sabbath was um sunset on friday to sunset on saturday a 24-hour period And the command to observe the Sabbath was clear, right? It's the fourth commandment, Exodus 28 through 11. The longest commandment, actually, that God gives through Moses. We're going to read it, Exodus 20, again, on the screen. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant— or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The Sabbath, as God intended it in the Old Testament, set Israel apart from the nations around it. Because it was an entire day, every single week where they would rest, and in doing so, proclaim God as Lord of all creation and time. This was so rare. It was actually never seen in the ancient world, right? Unheard of. The concept of a weekend did not exist, right? Like surrounding kingdoms just had to go, go, go all the time because they had to, right? They couldn't afford to rest. The weak rest, not the strong. And so here is a perfect way for Israel to be set apart because the whole nation, your servants, the the travelers that are with you, everybody in your family, the whole nation shuts down one day a week, every single week, and it was a proclamation to all that God is God and I'm not. God is God, he is in control, and so we can even rest from our work and worship him. God modeled this for them by resting when he created the world. He, listen, right? God did not rest because he was tired. You know what I'm saying? Like God was not fried after a long work week of creating oceans and stars and lions and whales. He rested as a way to enjoy his finished work. He rested because he was satisfied with his work and he could let it be. And so this is the right belief of the Sabbath. It's meant to be a rest from work so that we can rest in the fact that God is in control. So that we can enjoy the truth of being his people and let it be a witness to the world. We rest not because all of our work is done, but we rest because it's a reminder that he finished his work. And we can rest in that. And so it was understood amongst Israel that anything not necessary for survival was not to be done on the Sabbath. It was to be a day of joyous rest, a break from the normal routine of work. That's how it was meant to be. But of course, the Pharisees jacked it up, right? By the time of the first century, they took the Sabbath, this day meant to be enjoyed, and they built all these rules around this day. Specifically, there were 39 things that became banned on the Sabbath that were not outlined in scripture, which meant, ironically, it was harder work to keep the Sabbath the right way than it was to do the work they were supposed to be resting from. And they take issue with Jesus, and they take issue with his disciples, because they're breaking two of their 39 rules. Two of their 39 rules. First, they are traveling They are walking through fields. So listen, the Pharisees mandated that no one could take more than 1,999 steps. That was one of their rules on the Sabbath. You literally had to count your steps and ensure that you didn't go over right? That's what I mean by this became harder work than actual work, right? Like, it's hard to keep track of your steps like that. Like, they weren't strapped with Fitbits, all right, in the, in the first century. Like, they, they had to count that all the way through. They're not getting any alerts, like, you're close, you better sit down, right? So they accused Jesus of traveling. Not supposed to do that on the Sabbath. And second, they're accused of reaping, They said that by taking heads off the grain, uh, that that is on par with reaping or harvesting the fields, and you're breaking the Sabbath law. So the Pharisees are leveraging the Old Testament, but now they're adding extra-biblical laws, and notice how Jesus responds. You see what Jesus does? He also references the Old Testament, showing them the true meaning and interpretation of the Sabbath. And he uses a little sarcasm. He goes, hey, have you ever read about this guy named David? You ever heard about this guy David? He just happens to be the most famous Jewish person that's ever lived. You ever read about him? Ever read his story? Perhaps you've heard of him. And he hearkens back to 1 Samuel chapter 6 when David and his soldiers were in need and they go into the temple hungry. And they come upon in the temple the bread of the presence, right? The consecrated bread of the temple, bread that was set in a holy place that only the priests were to eat, 12 loaves to represent 12 tribes, and David's men came and they ate it. And Jesus is saying While it was not normative or even quote-unquote lawful for David and his men to eat it, it was even more crucial to God that David's men ate when they were in need so they didn't starve. God is primarily concerned with caring for his people, not weighing them down. Nowhere in Scripture is David ever condemned for that action. And David is condemned for many other actions, right? That guy had, like, he just messed up in some bad areas. But never once does Scripture condemn him for that. And so Jesus says, the Sabbath, as originally casted out, is meant to bless mankind, to free them, to have them enjoy their rest, not be something that's just a burden. And and just kind of a side note, we can probably extend that to all spiritual disciplines, right? So any spiritual discipline, prayer, just attending worship, Bible reading, fasting, observing the Sabbath and others, all those rightly understood are not actions meant to weigh you down. They're not to make you feel guilty for not doing them. They're not meant to be a burden. All spiritual disciplines are a means of grace to be enjoyed, that serve to restore us, to sustain us. And and once just religious activity, just, just once activity becomes just a burden all the time, we strip them of their original purpose. The point of the Sabbath, believing what's right about the Sabbath, is to experience the joy of rest and allow that to point to the joy we have in a God who works for us. And so it's vital we see this, right? Because the principle and the purpose of the Sabbath, they still apply today. On one level, there are practical implications where we instate times of rest each week from our normal work and routine. It's no longer a defined 24-hour period that the whole church has to observe, but it's times of rest from work where knowing that God created our bodies and minds with the need for rest to be replenished. right? So just purely practical level, we know that we are far more effective, far more efficient working six days and resting one than we are to working all seven that eventually that's going to burn out and that's how god wired us so resting well building rhythms of rest into our lives is a mark of maturity a spiritual maturity to to not rest to just say i gotta go 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 all the time that's not a sign that you're a super christian right it's a subtle way of convincing ourselves that we're god that we never need to take a break And it's this pride of self that has at its root a lack of trust in God and his work. And so, yes and amen, practical applications for the Sabbath. And and actually, in our grace groups this week, um, we are going to have an opportunity to kind of take this discussion, lay it down on top of our lives, and just gauge how well are we resting? How well are we honoring the Sabbath in our lives? But it goes beyond that. Because did you know also what Jesus said? Did you notice? He said... The Son of Man, referring to himself, is Lord even of the Sabbath. Not over the Sabbath. He's not, just, he's not just the rule maker over it. He says he's the Lord of the Sabbath, meaning that the Sabbath instated in the Old Testament is meant to point to him. Only in Christ can we have true rest in our life. Only in Christ can we have this full confidence that our life's purpose and call are found and secure in him. So think about this, all right? Follow along with me. God rested on the seventh day because there was no more work to be done and he could rest in his finished work of creation. And likewise, pointing to Christ. It's in Christ where we repent of our sin, place our faith in him, where we are able to rest our souls in him, knowing there's no more work to be done for my salvation. There's no more work to be done because he did it all. It's Jesus saying on the cross, it is finished, that we can enjoy the rest of being within his finished work of redemption by faith. By faith his work of recreation his work of making us new and this is incredible when it's found it's one thing to be heard it's one thing to comprehend it's one thing to connect to the old testament but when that's experienced like that's explosive right that we don't have to be stressed and anxious as to whether or not we're getting the most out of life of whether we're living to our potential, of whether we're reaching our maximal level of happiness. Because the reason, if you just look around, the reason why everyone's just strung out all the time, driving themselves into the ground, is because their work is what they rely on for meaning. Their identity, their joy, their purpose. And and, and they have to find it there because they'll find it nowhere else. So they got to keep going and keep digging. And Jesus is saying, no, come find your rest in me you won't find it anywhere else you'll just be on the chase and you'll just keep running and you're not even going to sure what you're running after and you might even attain it and then realize that actually wasn't what you were running after it's not actually what you needed just grinding it out day after day not even knowing if that's the right path he says listen it's only in me that this search stops It's only in me where you aren't burdened and exhausted, but where you can find rest in your soul from my work. He says in Matthew, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. The Sabbath, rightly understood when we believe what's right, leads us to Christ. Christ. Let's keep going. Chapter 3 now, verses 1 through 5. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? to save life or to kill. But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Second, Jesus shows us what it looks like to be doing what's right, right? If we believe what's right, we are eternally secure in Christ and that is experienced by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit by faith within us who then equips us to live out that faith in our actions. Believing what's right empowers and leads to doing what's right. And that's what Jesus is showing us here. Two episodes with the Sabbath. First, how do you believe what's right? And then, second, how does that empower you to actually now do what's right? And it's this episode right here where it's the final straw. This is where he and the Pharisees cross into the point of no return. He enters the synagogue. And in the synagogue is a man with a withered hand, Uh, a disabled man, a disabled man who is in need of healing, but I mean, maybe even more than that, just in need of love, just of compassion for somebody just to notice him. And it's how sad is it that he can't even find that in the synagogue? Part of Jewish worship was a period where you had to lift your hands in worship, and he can't even worship the right way, according to the Pharisees, because often the disabled would be shunned by the Pharisees who would teach the Jews that they're disabled because of their own sin. They did something wrong, or the sin of their parents. You don't have to feel compassion for them. They had what's coming to them. They're paying their price. Zero compassion, even in the synagogue. But the really infuriating aspect of all this is that while the Pharisees just ignored this man day after day, week after week, they obviously noticed him. Because the second Jesus walks in, they are watching Jesus closely to see if Jesus would have the nerve to heal him on the Sabbath. Right? Happens to be a Saturday. Happens to be one of their 39 rules. Of course, you can't heal or tend the needs of others on the Sabbath. And so the scene is set. And this just exposes the deadly, the destructive hard-heartedness of the Pharisees and their legalism. Do you know what legalism is? Legalism is taking traditions and preferences that are not mandated in Scripture and imposing them on others. It's an act of spiritual superiority, right? And it feasts on finding fault with others. Here's the thing about legalists, and we should all be careful, right? Because there are often things where we could even be legalistic in if we're not careful. But the thing about legalists is that they love catching people in the act. They are looking for, hoping for somebody to misstep so they can be the first ones to call them out. Right? It's this like fake outrage, This fake outrage where they seem all upset, but inside they love calling them out. Especially the ones they don't like. And they sat in the synagogue staring at Jesus, hoping he would heal this man so they can accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. A law that by Jewish law was punishable by death. And in walks Jesus. And praise God, he is everything the Pharisees are not. He's compassionate. He seeks to do good to others whenever he can. He seeks to be an agent of restoration and in doing so to provide a glimpse into life in the kingdom of God. And he walks in and he he knows what's going on. And he's angry, right? His his blood's just starting to boil in him that they could just be so hard-hearted. And so he calls the man to him. You notice that? He doesn't hide it. He's not just trying to be, oh man, the Pharisees are watching, let me try and heal this guy on the side and no one notices. No, he walks in, he goes to the man, he says, come here. And then he locks eyes with the Pharisees and blatantly in front of everyone asks a simple question. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm? Is it lawful to save life or to kill? he takes the complex, confusing laws of the Pharisees and he obliterates them with a simple question. That's an easy question, right? It's, it's an easy call, and yet what? Silence. They, they can't even answer this question, and in doing so, their silence exposes them. It exposes their faulty view of the nature of a good God. It exposes that they see themselves and their rules as the center of their lives, not God. And with the deafening answer of silence, Jesus turns to the man and says, stretch out your hand. The Sabbath is for restoration. And that is put on visual display with the restoration of his hand. Stretch out your hand a glimpse into the kingdom of God where there will be no more brokenness. There will be no more withered hands and this man stands restored and all that remains is the withered hearts of the Pharisees. Jesus lives out what he says, sums up the entire law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. To love God and to love your neighbor is to do them good. Is, it good. is it lawful to do good or to do harm? Jesus puts on display, do what's right. Give yourself. Always be a giver. Always for the glory of God and the good of others. Where are you giving yourself? So this past weekend, family was in town. And I was talking to my brother, um, who's a major in the army. Um, just got back from Afghanistan last month. And he reads a lot on his deployments. And so he's recommending, we're just talking about books that he's read, and he he talks about this one book. He says it's a book on leadership. It's called Give and Take. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Give and Take, but he gives me the premise, and it's fascinating, especially because this sermon was percolating in my mind last Sunday. He says the premise of a book, which, by the way, is written by a non-believer. He says you can boil people down into three categories. Givers, takers and matchers givers takers and matchers he says you have takers people who are always looking to get as much as possible from others how what what can i get from you how much can i get from you and then he said you have matchers people who if you do them a favor they will look to give one back in return and vice versa if they give you a favor they'll expect to get one back in return and he said and then there's givers Those who go out of their way to help and to support, no expectations, no strings attached. And I'm going to generalize here, but he does all these studies of leaders. And he says the surprising aspect of the study is that the ones who are most successful, most joyful, and most productive are the givers. It's not what you'd expect. You'd expect the takers to be the one who end up with the most in the yangs. They always just want to take as much from you as they can. And they have a life that's just taking, taking. You expect them to be at the top and, and, and joyful at the top. And he says, no, it's not how it ends up. And he has the data to back it up. He says, it's the givers who, by and large, end up on top. And so as we're talking to my brother I just said to him, I just said, I love when social science and studies prove what the Bible has said all along. Jesus said, it's better to give than to receive. He says, if you want to gain your life, you need to lose it. Jesus was a giver. And he calls his disciples to be the same. He says, give. No strings attached. Do good. No strings attached. Is it better to do good or to do harm? Love God, love others, be people who are defined by what you give. All right, let's finish up. Verse 6, chapter 3. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How? To destroy him. It's The final straw. We saw the call to believe what's right, the call to do what is right. And now, third and lastly, we see the fallout of what's right. This brought the Pharisees to the point of no return. Here it is, chapter 3, pretty early on in your gospel. You know they want to kill them. The rest of their desire now, no more diplomatic resolutions. No more trying to talk about it. They're ready to kill them. And this is the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees. Think about this. The act that pushed them over the edge was an act of compassion. They are so angry that Jesus healed this man, that he disabled a man who was, uh, that he restored a man who was disabled probably for his whole life. Like what? Like, like what Blindness. It's right in front of them, and this is something they should be celebrating, like praise God for this. And yet, no, it's the very thing that made them go, this guy's got to go. But here's the wrinkle that's easy to overlook. We were just introduced to a new group of people in that verse. Did you notice that? a group of people we haven't heard about yet in the Gospel of Mark, a group of people who were only mentioned a few times in the four Gospels that the Pharisees went out and they held counsel with the Herodians. The Herodians were generally wealthy Jewish individuals who were in favor of integrating Greco-Roman culture into Jewish customs. So they were all about this Roman rule. And not only that, but infusing Roman rule with what's happening in the Jewish culture and Jewish customs. They supported their political leader, King Herod, right? Hence the name Herodians. And they also were not a fan of Jesus. Because anyone who can draw a crowd like Jesus, they have the power to start a rebellion. Anyone who gets this kind of falling—it's following, it's kind of a warning sign, a red flag for the Roman rule. You know why this council is so strange? Because the Pharisees and the Herodians hated each other. The Pharisees were literally hoping for a political Messiah to free them from Rome. They thought it was wicked to integrate Roman culture into Jewish culture and yet here they are joining forces because they have a common enemy. They say the enemy enemy of an enemy is a friend. And they begin to conspire together, how could we get rid of this guy? This is the final straw. And Jesus knew walking into the synagogue that this was the pathway He knew that this healing would be the one that would lead to the conviction and unity of his enemies to destroy him. That's why he said, come here, locked eyes with the Pharisees and made sure they were watching. He knew this is where it would lead and he did it anyway. Why? This is important. Give me a few minutes, right? Because his conviction to do what's right was stronger than his fear of being killed. The fallout of doing what's right does not dictate whether or not something is right. And he acted in accordance with his convictions, and he was willing to accept whatever was going to come. I mean, what a Savior. Like, I am eternally grateful that Jesus did what's right, not because it was advantageous for him, but simply because it was right. And this is such a model for us in the church. Listen, there are texts in scripture um, that we'll come across in weeks where it's kind of tough to apply or are tough to extract the application. We have to do some work to see, okay, how does this apply to me? I walk out the room. What should I learn from this? There can be scriptures where it's difficult to do that. Listen, this is not one of those. Keep it simple. Let's learn from our Savior. It's always good to do what's right. The marker of a believer is that they, by God's grace and power through the Holy Spirit inside of them, can do what's right. To do good, to bless others, to be a giver, to tell the truth, to do what's right. And so you might ask, well, well, this is really subjective now, how do I know what's right? Well, to start, it means what's means doing what falls in line with the fruit of the spirit in any situation many of you have these memorized right love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control which means husbands there's a lot of reasons you should love your wife well and be faithful to her but primarily you should do it because it's right At work or in school, we should work hard, study hard, have integrity because it's right. The look for where we can be a blessing to others financially, give ourselves to support and serve, especially the least of these, for a lot of reasons, again, but primarily because it's right. I remember having a conversation with my dad that, you know, one of the few things that just are burned into my memory that, and he said, you know what's surprisingly, the surprisingly simple answer to a lot of our questions and decisions and dilemmas in life, you know what's surprisingly simple answer to all of them on any given day? If we just did what was right, regardless of what the consequences were. And if we're honest, potential consequences and negative fallout can dictate what we do far more than it should. The model that Christ puts out is to do what's right and just accept whatever comes from it. And so I get it. I understand that you might say like, whoa, you're making this way too simple. Life is not that simple. It's not that black and white. There's all these situations that are nuanced and complex and I don't know what's right And I would say this, I get it, those situations exist, but even being conservative, I'd say 95% of the decisions we face, if not more, we know what's right, and our knowledge far outweighs our obedience oftentimes. And if we are faithful in doing what's right in the things that are clear, dozens and dozens of decisions we make every day, we can trust that God will unveil the right decisions over time in those situations that are not immediately clear. So if we're walking out the door with one thing this morning, let's just let this be burned to our minds from our Savior when he asks, is it good to do good or to do harm? It's a simple question, and it brought about silence from the Pharisees and let us know it is never good to neglect doing what's right. And it's never bad to do what's right. Every single one of us are going to face that dilemma, maybe within 10 minutes outside the door. This isn't hypothetical. Decisions that are going to be public, even more decisions that are going to be private, big things, little things, brothers and sisters. Do what's right. You can, even when it's hard, even when it could cost you, especially when it will cost you. Let us do what is right. For we are givers, no strings attached, because we have a Savior who gave his life for us while we were yet sinners. And so we are called to be givers by his power, we can do that. So let us walk in that truth. Let us trust God with that truth and let himself bring himself the glory and our joy in the expansion of his kingdom forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.